coming up on Philosophy Talk. A summer reading list. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Uh, yes. Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Samarkand Desert with the Duchess of Kent by A.E.J. Eliot, O.B.E.? Uh, well, I don't know the book, sir. In the summertime when the weather is high, you can stretch right up and touch the sky. Fiction. Non-fiction. Whom to read this summer? Whom to read this summer? Eat a bagel while reading Hegel. What's on your reading list? Ethel the Aardvark goes quantity surveying. Ethel the Aardvark! <laughs> yes! Yes! Here we are! Ethel the Aardvark goes quantity surveying! There's your book! Now, buy it! Our guest, Danielle Marshall, from Powell City of Books in Portland, Oregon. In the summertime when the weather is high. A summer reading list. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. After the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the lovely Stanford campus. Today, our third annual <laughs> summer reading list show. Come on, Ken, is it really that time of year again? I, I, I've just barely gotten through the last year's summer reading list. It's already time to make a new one? Yeah, John, but it sounds like you did eventually get through last year's list, right? Uh, no, I was lying. <laughs> oh, are you, were you too busy? You got it. I mean, too busy. Uh, busy's not quite the right word. Summer's a great time just to lie around. It's a great time to do some gardening, fix up the house. Then when, you, when you're going to relax, there's, there's all this stuff on screens. You can play Grand Theft Auto 4 now. That's a real thrill. I mean, with so many diversions to choose from, do books really stand much of a chance? Well, you know, CNN, apropos your point, CNN did a poll a year ago on the reading habits of Americans. They found that 25%, 25% of American adults had not read a single book over the previous year, let alone a philosophy book. Yeah, I know some of those people. That raises an interesting question. Is the decline of books a good thing, a bad thing? We question everything. We have to ask this question. A good thing, a bad thing, or an indifferent thing? Well, it's clearly, it's surely a bad thing. I mean, books are one of life's great treasures. A good book can transport you to distant times and faraway places. A book can change the way you think. It can change the way you feel inside. Well, yeah, and all that's true of good movies, too. And, and, and you know, movies are more immediately gripping. They're more accessible than books, at least most movies are easy to understand. A good movie can stir the senses, the imagination, the emotions. You don't have to parse difficult sentences. I think that's why the book is losing out to the screen. I mean, I grant you that movies are easy in a way compared to books, but the easier path isn't always the better path. A good book gives the intellect and the imagination a much better workout. It, builds, it helps build up mental muscles that movies can't touch. Oh, aren't you impressively erudite. <laughs> but look, try this experiment. Suppose the screen, the movie screen, the TV screen, the video game screen, the computer screen, suppose these had all been invented before the book. And then there's this new technology, the book, that tries to worm its way in. Would this subsequent invention of the book after the screen pose a threat to the dominance of the screen? No, it wouldn't. I think that's think that's right, but I don't really I don't really think that shows any anything much because that's just because of Taylor's law. 
Taylor's Law? Never heard of that one. Well, that's because I just made it up, John. I mean, Taylor's Law says that the invention of easy stuff may drive out the hard stuff, but the invention of the hard stuff will never drive out the easy stuff. Easy stuff will persist. Well, that's very cute. But, you know, it's not that clear cut. I mean... Uh, some movies are very subtle. Some things on the screen aren't just cheap thrills, and lots of books are just so much blah. Well, I mean, I'm, I love movies, and I'm not here to knock them. I love all kinds of screens, in fact. But I do come in praise of the book, man. Books can take us on great intellectual, emotional, and imaginative journeys. And sure, a book that takes you on a great journey can really ask a lot of you along the way. But you know what? A truly great book will give back even more than it asks of you. Okay, I'm going to quit this role-playing. I'm a bibliophile, not a bibliophobe. I love books. Last summer, I had a lot of good titles. I've got another long list of good titles, including some of the same ones that I want to read this summer. Well, we'll get to your list and to mine, too, John, in a little bit. We'll also be joined by Danielle Marshall from Powell's Books. It's her job to take the pulse of the reading public. In our first segment with Danielle, we'll explore philosophically interesting nonfiction. Then in our second segment, it's fiction and philosophy. And finally, in our third segment, we'll talk about philosophy titles themselves. What's hot and what's not. Hot philosophy titles. I love that. And we're also eager to hear from you, our listening audience. What's on your reading list this summer? What do you suggest we put on ours? Join the conversation by calling 1-800-525-9917, and we can cast a wide net for great reading. That's 1-800-525-9917. For this year's summer reading list, Ken and I went with our roving philosophical reporter on an adventure trip to find some good books. Zoe Corneli has this report. On a recent trip to Portland, we paid a visit to Powell's City of Books, one of the largest independent bookstores in the world. Our hosts, John Perry and Ken Taylor, took the opportunity to browse their favorite section. Probably one of the biggest philosophy sections in any bookstore that I've been in. The shelves are 12 feet high, maybe. This is more like a library than a bookstore. Although they don't put too many books and they say overstock employees only for the high shelves, at least you have this feeling. Like when you walk down the streets of Manhattan, you have the feeling that you're in a, some kind of a forest of buildings. Here you have your feeling you're in a forest of books and bookshelves, and, and the light has to sneak in, and I, I think it's wonderful. Four shelves of Once they get over feeling like kids in a candy store, John and Ken discover some interesting titles. But here's a great book I've never heard of. It's called Who's Who in Hell. That's pretty amazing. And it, it looks like a who's who book. 1,200 pages of, of atheists. 1,200 pages of atheists. What's it say? Mark Twain is reputed to have said, heaven for the climate, hell for the company. A kaleidoscope <laughs> of contentious individuals. Here's a book called Binding Words, Conscience and Rhetoric in Hobbes, Hegel, and Heidegger. Now, John, what do Hobbes, Hegel, and Heidegger have to do with each other? They all use words. Is that it? Here's a great book. This is uh, Robert Burton's The Anatomy of Melancholy, which is a very old book, maybe the 17th century. It's really a wonderful book to sit around and read when you've got better things to do. But he's got, like, here's a whole section on windy melancholy, which which I think means you're depressed and flatulent. Meanwhile, Ken seems to have a radar for philosophy books on unsavory topics. Eretism, sexual plethora and death. Well, what do you think that's about? I can only imagine. These pictures. There's a Hellenistic monument in the form of a phallus from the little temple of Dionysus at Delos. The front facade represents the 
bird phallus, which in the procession was placed on a chariot. <laughs> a bird phallus on a chariot. <laughs> a huge bird phallus carried forth on a chariot. What's some other chapters in this book? The Enigma of Incest. Wow. Chapter 12. The object of desire, prostitution, the erotic object. The orgy is the sacred aspect of eroticism in which the continuity of beings beyond solitude is most plainly expressed. Only in one way, however. In the orgy, individuals lose themselves at the climax, but in mingled confusion. The orgy is necessarily disappointing. <laughs> Theoretically, it is the complete negation of the individual quality. Well, that's true. Not only is individuality itself submerged in the tumult of, of the orgy, but each participant denies the individuality of the others. All limits are completely done away with, or so it seems, but it is impossible for nothing to remain of the differences between individual, individuals and the sexual attraction connected with those differences. Well, wow. This is pretty cool. <laughs> this seems like worth a read. This is pretty serious. Good stuff. You see down here, there's a there's a little gap between Peirce and Plato. Where Perry goes. Where, where obviously they had a lot of my books. <laughs> and oh, wait, here they've got one. Dialogue on evil, good evil and the existence of God. I remember writing that. So obviously though, they have a lot of trouble keeping them in stock. Towards the end of the philosophy section, Ken makes an unfortunate discovery. Yeah, the T's are here. There should be Taylor. Well, there is Taylor. Oh, but it's Charles Taylor? Hmm. Richard Taylor? It goes from Charles to Richard. It skips Ken. There's no K. Uh, they don't have any of my books here. Oh, well. Ken does have a new book out called Referring to the World. We'll have to see if it's on the shelves the next time we're here. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Zoe Corneli. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.